What's the secret to a happy life? For the answer, join us in Madrid from Thursday the 27th to Saturday the 29th of June for Monocle's fifth annual Quality of Life Conference. Head to conference.monocle.com for all the details and to buy your ticket. Monocle, keeping an eye and an ear on the world. You're listening to Midori House, first broadcast on the 14th of May 2019 on Monocle 24. Hello and welcome to Midori House, coming to you live from Studio One here in London. I'm Daniel Bage. On today's program, the Brexit party, led by right-wing populist Nigel Farage, is polling very well ahead of the upcoming European elections. Those ones British politicians are just so thrilled to be taking part in. My guests Michael Goldfarb and Robert Fox will be discussing what this means for Brexit negotiations and the future of the Conservative and Labour parties. And... The president has made this clear, so has the secretary of state. We are not looking to get into a war with Iran. The U.S. is blaming Iran for apparent damage to four ships in the Gulf of Oman. We ask whether the incident will sink relations between Tehran and Washington. Plus, we ask who may have been targeted after WhatsApp admits a vulnerability in its code allowed attackers to put Israeli spyware on users' phones. All that plus the fun police have clamped down on boozing in the street in Tokyo. That's all to come on Midori House with me, Daniel Bench. Welcome to Midori House. My guests today are Michael Goldfarb, veteran journalist and broadcaster, and Robert Fox, defense editor for the London Evening Standard. Welcome, gentlemen. Both back to the program and to Midori House, we're less than 10 days away from European elections, which Britain, of course, has been made to take part in the fault of politicians, of course, who agree on absolutely nothing that is around Brexit. And if you are to believe the latest opinion poll from The Observer, Nigel Farage and his Brexit party are set to replicate the good returns seen by his former party, UKIP, in previous ballots. The Observer puts Brexit at 34% of the vote, more than both Labour and the Conservatives combined, with the Tories on a dismal 11%. Uh, Michael, how much has this shaken the Tories and the Labour Party? Well, I think it's certainly shaken the Tories. And, and the thing about the Tories is you'd think they'd be well shaken after the last 18 months. But this is a confirmation for them that, you know, this, this has become the only issue in British politics, and they can't possibly win on it. And the idea is that their supporters are racing off to UKIP. I mean, this is why we had the referendum in the first place. Last set of European elections, everybody went off to, started going off to UKIP. We want out, we want out is what the right wing in this country thinks. I said, right wing isn't even the right term, is it, Robert? I mean, you just can't say it. Um, the nationalist strain in England. Nativist. Nativist, that's mm. a better word, um, has become dominant in British politics, in both major parties. Let's be clear. Um, it's less nativist in Labour because it's led by you know some old, unreconstructed lefty who thinks somehow that the European Union is a capitalist plot against working people, yet in his negotiations with Theresa May, he's insisting on uniformity of labor laws between the UK and EU once we leave because he understands that EU offers greater protection for working class people who have jobs as opposed to don't have jobs. And yet he can't, he can't see that dichotomy. It's a mess. Well, for us, as a good result 
from his Brexit party would force MPs to consider leaving the EU without a deal, something they've soundly rejected already. Um, what do we think about that? Does that play into this narrative for you, Robert? Actually, when real policy, mm. as opposed to politics, mm. enter the strange world of Nigel Farage, because it is really a truly fantastic world at times. You know, it's world dominance at one point for the populists on the one hand. But he's no good at running things. Uh, he busts up every party he's been in. The party is largely about him. As John Grace uh, said once in The Guardian about 10 days ago, he's the narcissist's narcissist. And I can just about get my teeth around that. Um, but the fact is, he is, um, je suis contre, I'm against, I'm against this. And Michael spelled it out absolutely beautifully mm. as to what everybody is against. It is this left behind rage, which is very worrying. And rage goes with age too, don't, don't I know it. And the, the, this, is, this is part of um, the revolt. But the other part of your question is absolutely right. This is the strange death of Tory England. Mm. Um, it's over for that party. It is too white. It's too middle-aged. It's too middle-class. It's too male. And they've, be, they, they've been warned there. Labour is fascinating because yeah. Labour is, as, 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 as Michael says, that the most coherent group is McDonnell, who was a Gramscian. Uh, there is uh, um, Seamus Milne, who really is the real ideologue, mm. um, uh, son of a former BBC director general, uh, Winchester College, one of the elite schools, Balliol College, Oxford. But, you know, absolutely a Pol Pot um, uh, a view of the world. He wants to go back to Anno Zero, as the Italians say. And uh, in the middle, you've got Jeremy Corbyn. I've got to get this one. I was listening to Jeremy Corbyn and some of his closest supporters. I wonder whether he's really bothered about whether... UK or Britain, if he ever comes to rule it, should follow the path of Nicolas Maduro or Hugo Chavez. Okay. You know, it, it's really, it is so unreal. Robert in, can it, take that up with you. In the middle, you've got, you've got the middle ground who have captured journalism and the media debate. There's one, one and a half parties that are organized, but they're organized at a very base local level. And they're yeah. the Liberal Democrats and, and the Greens. And what is so interesting is, and this is not being written about or commented on, it should be, it's, it's Tolstoy mm. at the beginning of Anna Karenina, that happy families are happy the same way the world over. The unhappy ones are unhappy in their each individual way. And you watch in these elections, and we're not watching closely enough yeah. what populism is doing in Europe. One of the, the thing, I just want to make one last point about Tories before we move on to populism in Europe. And that is that Crispin Blunt, there's this species, for people who don't live in England and are listening to this, there's this species of, of lifelong parliamentarians in the Conservative Party, and Crispin Blunt, with perfect name, um, is one of them. And today he actually said publicly that he expects that after the next general election, because the other thing we haven't mentioned is Theresa May's possibilities or probabilities of reaching the autumn mm. still as prime minister. She won't. Um, there will be a general election. And he was actually positing he, he, that the Tories will hemorrhage so many votes to the Brexit party in a general election that they would necessarily have to form a coalition with them to form the next government. Now, if one of the most senior figures of the Tory backbenchers, and I'm talking about for a quarter of a century, is saying, well, we're going to have to form coalition with Nigel Farage's group, that is an extraordinary statement. I'm sorry, it is the shades of 
that is Weimarism, isn't it? It is. It, it's absolutely trying to say because Blunt comes from one of these families. Michael's absolutely right. Brigade of Guards, this sort of thing. Because of the word that came up when he mentioned, him, I know Crispin quite well, uh, and he absolutely exudes this aura of entitlement. And actually, that's the thing that social media, everything else, simply isn't buying. And that is part of the genius. And there is a genius in the performance, the commedia dell'arte aspect of, uh, of, of whether he's Pierrot or Harlequin or whatever, mm. of Nigel Farage. He's a brilliant performer at, at, at this, of getting, getting on your nerves and touching the raw nerve. And as I said, everybody, everybody's fed up. Mm. If it wasn't a very polite show, I'd use a stronger word about, <laughs> uh, about this. But this is what you got with Trump. It's, you know, it's uh, 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 the, the, the death allergy of middle America and, 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 and so on. And I will follow Michael. I think after a general election, it is quite unpredictable as to what will happen. I don't think anyone can possibly know. I don't think anybody knows. Mm. I mean, it's it's possible. Who? I mean, is it possible that Jeremy Corbyn wouldn't lead Labour into a general election if there's a total disaster mm. in these European? Like, I mean, that is how unalterably messed up politics are in this country. But. Sorry, Daniel's no, wanting no. to ask. But, you know, when you bring up the performative aspect yeah. of Nigel Farage and the performative aspect of um, Donald Trump, and you spend a lot of time in Italy, Robert, and you know Matteo Salvini yeah. knows how to galvanize a crowd. Victor Orban, I have reported from Hungary, and I know that when he goes on television, he presents to Hungarians a, a kind of atavistic vision of what they should have been if the 20th century hadn't been so cruel, destroying the Austro-Hungarian Empire, having them occupied by the Nazis and then the Russians. He seems much... It's all about the performance. And because they're the traditional ways of doing politics behind an ideology that leads to a policy that leads to a, a, program. Amount of, yeah, yeah, a yeah. program that you, yeah. you present to the people and yeah. you find a nice salesman like Tony Blair yeah. or even Margaret Thatcher... She wasn't the greatest performer, but she was a good salesperson for a point of view. These people are both clowns, as you say, performing a tragedy. That's what's going on around... Pagliacci. Yeah, yeah. yeah exactly. <laughs> around Europe and in the United States. Um, there is a new kind of figure that's coming through, through, and I'm surprised he hasn't had more in the serious prints, more space, is Thierry Baudet mm. in, in the Netherlands, sure. who was outflanking Gert Wilders, because the other thing is that you can do this sort of with his bogus credential, and he has a whole theology uh, based on, on absolutely hard right-wing e e e e e e economics, um, which uh, doesn't have much time for democracy, funny yeah. old thing there. But this kind of figure gives it a sheen, gives it a respectability, and this is what's going on. I think um, one of the dominant figures in Europe is going to be, as Michael has already sprung um, the name, is going to be Matteo Salvini. Yeah. Because Matteo Salvini is finding a way, and he's being slapped down over it at the moment, of saying the unpalatable that everybody believes. You know, challenging migrants, saying we can't go on with this, with this kind of stuff. I think that you see, again, in Italy, I know that the European elections next week are going to be a huge um, opinion referendum. Uh, there's bound to be a general election uh, afterwards. And there, I think, Michael, this, this isn't a myth. It isn't, it, 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 it isn't something that, the, the, you know, the pointy-headed commentariat has put together. You get 
people like Farage, like um, Wilders, but Baudet behind him, Orban, and you're getting um, the, the, the background of the Trump team. But they are operating yeah. internationally. I mean, for goodness sake, what was Farage doing? Appearing serially on, on the shock jock shows of, of, of Alex Jones. Um, and we will see a lot of that. The new populism is here. Funny enough, I think democracy and the parliamentary institutions in Britain are in grave danger. But I also think that the whole cohesion of the European Union is as well. On that note, for the record, I got two questions in, gents, uh, for those keeping (laughs) score at home. Uh, We have to turn our attention now to the Middle East, uh, where U.S. President Donald Trump is pointing the finger at Iran over alleged damage to four oil tankers anchored in the Gulf of Oman. Officials from Saudi Arabia say two of their tankers sustained, quote, significant damage near the port of Fujairah, just outside of the Strait of Hormuz. Another tanker registered in Norway, a fourth registered in the UAE. U.S. ally, the UAE, condemning the alleged attack off its coast, while the Americans have been warning sailors of the potential for attacks already. Iran borders the strait and is calling for a full investigation of its own accord. They've previously threatened to close the strait, where a fifth of the world's oil passes through. Robert, uh, what is the latest that we know on this today? Well, there does seem to be some damage. It doesn't seem to have been substantial. So that's what's very interesting. It is very low-grade grade stuff. But they did it undetected, which, which is particularly interesting. But there is an addition to this. Haaretz has been breaking the story, um, and so has Associated Press and Reuters, that um, Saudi Arabia says um, a drone attack, very primitive drones, have been used to uh, laden with explosive to bomb two oil terminals. And they are blaming, this is Saudi Arabia, not Iran, but their ally and client, the Houthi, uh, as of Yemen. Now, this is getting to be extremely interesting. If you've got Houthi using very primitive drones and possibly being involved in very subsophisticated attacks, what the hell are you doing there with a huge, great, vulnerable aircraft carrier like Abraham Lincoln and sending a brand new ship, uh, the USS Arlington, uh, which can carry 636 U.S. Marines? Yeah, I mean, yeah. where are we going with this? It's, so we, we heard the clip off the top about uh, the U.S. Yeah. Uh, definitely beefing up uh, its presence in the area. Is this a strange proxy war we're seeing here? What is this? It's been going on for a bit. Yeah. So, okay. Michael. So, yeah. um, because you're young, Daniel, <laughs> and and we know the monocle listeners so are young. Look, this goes, as long as I, I've been a working adult, um, there's been tension with Iran. Going back to the 1979 revolution, the uh, kidnapping of 50 U.S. diplomats, um, and then three years later, there was... Uh, the Hezbollah bombing of the U.S. Marine barracks in Beirut, I think the largest loss of life actually in a single day, probably between, I, th- I think there may have been a day in the Vietnam War when there was a, a similar loss of life and at, at Quezon. major car bomb attack. And, truck bomb. Yeah. and, they, mm. and, and yeah. Hezbollah is an Iranian client. We were talking about undetected little bombs being attached to big ships. There was the SS Cole, again, just off the coast of the Emirates. Um, Look, and there's never been a war. There is this sick, symbiotic relationship between the regime, the, the theocratic regime in Iran, 
and particularly conservative Republican governments in which they come constantly to to the brink of war and they never go to war. It's incidents without war. You shoot down an Iranian plane over the, the, the Gulf, uh, uh, the, the Persian Gulf or the Gulf of Arabia, whichever side you prefer. And then a year later in Germany, Libya kills a bunch of soldiers in, in a terrorist attack mm. on behalf. Uh, you know, th this is just one more incident. What makes it worrying, um, and remember, the Bush administration overthrew Saddam Hussein, and then within a year, Iran was providing the IEDs that were killing American soldiers. They didn't invade Iran. What what is happening now? And the only and the thing to worry about, but it doesn't worry me, um, is that Trump is not as good at what he's doing as, say, Cheney and Rumsfeld and Bush were. And they weren't very good at it because they messed up Iraq. John Bolton, who is, is living proof of how close America and Britain have come. Because, you know, in Britain, if you, say, go to Winchester and Balliol, as Seamus Milne did, then you're comped for the rest of your life to screw up the country, even though you manifestly have no skills at whatever you do. John Bolton... He's a graduate of Yale Law School, same, same class as Hillary Clinton, by the way. And he's been comped through life. Oh, he's got a degree from Yale Law. He must know what he's doing. The National Security Advisor of America doesn't know what he's doing. He can't even overthrow successfully the Venezuelan dictator, Nicolas Maduro. I can tell you, because I've reported from Iran and from Venezuela, there's no comparison in these dictatorships. Iran cannot be overthrown the way by sending an aircraft carrier. All you can do is ratchet tension, get lots of clicks on your right-wing news websites, bump up the raiders at, at Fox News, and that's what's going on. So I tend not to worry. I think Robert's worried. Though. <laughs> is that a dangerous way of, of boosting popularity? I, I, th I think it's very worrying because, um, you know, parallel, line, parallel lines don't meet. Um, uh, but... There are parallels with, you know, a weakish president or, or intellectually weak in George W. Bush and Rumsfeld and Wolfowitz and others running rings around him and being obsessed with Iraq because even with 9-11, within weeks, they were talking about, you know, that mm. it really had to be done in Iraq. At that very time, Bolton was still uh, uh, chattering away in whatever media he could find saying, actually, no, the real problem is Iran. And Bolton, it seems, from his latest pronouncements, anyway, this year's pronouncements, is heading for regime change. Goodness knows really why. And I follow Michael's thought that that is non-strategic thinking. You want to overthrow them. What are you going to replace them with and to what purpose? And the fact is, if they're really going to go for regime change, which Trump seems to be talking about uh, half the time, and this is why the Israelis are pulling back, it means, ha, occupation. America, more or less, has had a go at occupation in Iraq and Afghanistan, and they're equally disastrous. Look at today's New York Times, full-page editorial, the absolute disaster, which everybody is turning and looking the other way in Afghanistan that's going on. Yes, Iran has a very firm grip on the al-Mahdi uh, regime in, 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 in Baghdad at the moment. If the Shiites were going to come and take their place as, as the relative majority in, in the country, then you're going to get a, a, a Iran with it. What we're looking at is a complete illogic, 
illogicality, sorry to get that word out. It, um, and the really interesting part of this is Bush himself, although he had Tony Blair, wasn't terribly good at allies. Trump is even worse. And it's very interesting that one of the weakest, though quite bright, foreign ministers in the European panoply, uh, Jeremy Hunt of the UK, has said, be careful. We could be tripping into war, and I don't want to see the country committed to war by accident, which was a message to his party as much as to, tr to Trump. Europe will not go along with Trump on, on this, and the people who really know it are Benjamin Netanyahu, and Vladimir Putin. Mm. And, that, and that's, the, uh, I've been wagging my finger, <laughs> people can't see it because it's radio and you can't see us. But look, um, you mentioned he, Trump is worse at allies than George Bush. And that's true. But there's one ally that we don't even think is an ally, and that's Putin. And when I brought up Venezuela, very specifically, and, and, and there is a connection between uh, Iran and Venezuela in this way. Uh, two weeks ago, it almost seemed as if there was going to be a coup to overthrow Nicolas Maduro. Guaido was going to be installed. Trump had an hour and a half long phone call with Putin. He gave no readout of it. Putin did. And basically, Putin said, no, Maduro is ours. And Trump backed down. He said, well, I, and, and he tweeted, I don't know what, what, Joe, what Mike Pompeo and John Bolton were saying. They're strong characters. But, you know, we're not interested in doing this coup. Now, anyone who knows anything about the world knows that in Syria, Russia and Iran are propping up that regime, the regime of Bashar al-Assad. Anyone who's remotely knowledgeable about geography realizes that, you know, Iran and Russia are near neighbors, uh, separated by the Caspian Sea and, and, you know, former Soviet client states. I think that the main player here will have to be Putin. And if Putin says, you know, enough but no more, I do believe that Donald Trump would probably say, okay, and stand John Bolton down. Because I don't think he pays attention to all of these maneuvers. Michael, can I just say, just take it out. I don't think Putin can, for a millisecond, contemplate regime change in Tehran. He because he, think of the uh, unsympathetic vibration to that, uh, mangle uh, a, a, a metaphor of physics that will go on throughout the, throughout the Caucasus, throughout the Stans. They are super uh, 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 aware of this. But you're quite right about Syria, too, that this is the thing, despite Netanyahu getting up and yelling and screaming that the Iranians are doing this and bombing them and saying they mustn't be allowed to arm Hezbollah, Trump knows, Putin knows, Erdogan knows that the Iranians are keeping Bashar al-Assad in power. And that really, for the status quo at the moment, suits just about everybody, all the outside players. Gents, we'll have to uh, keep yeah. rolling on here. And we're going <laughs> to, uh, we've, we've mentioned Netanyahu a few times, but let's, let's bring Israel into this, uh, this oh, messy wow. chat about, uh, yeah. <laughs> about the Middle East. Uh, let's look at WhatsApp, which says it has patched a vulnerability which allowed attackers to put Israeli spyware onto people's phones by ringing them up. This malicious code was developed by the secretive Israeli company NSO Group with links to the military, I believe. Robert, you can you can clarify that. Uh, but this could be installed without people even knowing. So what do we know about those who may have been targeted or, or had this vulnerability? 
Well, it's not clear exactly who has been targeted and why and what mm. they want to get out of it, but this is just very, very early days. Mm. And so, oh, it might have something to do with the military. I mean, do. I'm about to say, to, to, to really be with my religious vulgarisms, is the Pope a Catholic? Anybody involved in serious military attack or security attack spyware in Israel is involved with the military. It is actually, don't get me wrong, it is the military industrial state. It, 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 it really is. is. I've toured Israel. I've actually been in an affiliate of, uh, of this company, and it was eye-watering. They were showing us an exercise of a counter-terrorist exercise in a conurbation, uh, a Tel Aviv, a Haifa, or, 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 or whatever. And they were doing things, jumping into people's uh, uh, mobile phone messaging. And I'm going to take the name of a very dear colleague in vain. I had Phil Johnson of The Telegraph, who was one of the outstanding home affairs, in other words, interior ministry correspondents in, in UK journalism of the last 25 years. And he said, look, you just would not be allowed to even begin to do this in either the US or the UK. You know, such as the state of uh, of, of, of of you know the rights of liberty embedded and uh, privacy embedded in law. No, the Israelis do it. They are the world leaders. They have been at this for a very very long time, for practically since mobile technology came in, including planting uh, um, uh, in for targeted assassinations. You know, doctoring mobile phones that would blow up in uh, the unwitting uh, re- recipient's face. No, this is so, but we don't know where it takes us. Um, it's part of what we were talking about with um, with both stories, by the way. We have no idea where this technology is taking us. AI and autonomous systems are the things in military security and homeland resilience that are going to be out of human control or uh, reasonable human control if it's regime Trump or regime Theresa May very, very soon. It's not, this is hypothetical. Yeah. I've seen it and it works. What, what's yeah. interesting is, um, first of all, I deleted WhatsApp from my phone on the way down, okay? I didn't realize, but apparently my mobile network had been down for seven hours. I thought, I'd write this story. I knew we were going to talk about it. Suddenly, I can't make a call out. I can't get online. So I thought, the Israelis know what I've been saying about Bibi Netanyahu, and they, they've hit me through WhatsApp. So I took WhatsApp out. No, literally, I did. I took WhatsApp out. No, to be I, serious, I don't think they'd be worried about Bibi Netanyahu. They, they would be worried about us talking about their capability and why yeah. it, is a, it defends a basic thanks. human and civil right in most Western democracies. And, and it, was a, it was a human rights lawyer. Right, a human rights lawyer whose phone had been messed up, and 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 that's how WhatsApp found that they needed to do this patch, uh, and but we don't know how many other people's phones have been infected. So Robert is right. The uh, people who criticize Israel and Palestine, just to slightly go off topic, what they forget is they say, oh well, if if America didn't give Israel two billion dollars a year then Israel couldn't defend itself. They don't get that. That's just research and development money from the Pentagon. The Israelis do it in Israel. They have developed systems that only geeks like us will read about that exist already. They then flog this stuff to, to regimes that, in theory, have no relations diplomatically. Yeah. Yeah. They flogged it to the Saudis. Even when Turkey and Israel were fighting over the Mavi Marmara, oh, how dare you stop this 
ship trying to sail into Gaza. They were selling this stuff. This stuff is too good. If you're a strong man, if you're trying to maintain control of your population, you want this stuff. And the Israelis have developed it in a very amoral um very amoral way. So that's part of the, the equation here. But again, this is stuff that's been known for a long time. I, there's a guy, um, the guy who set up Boing Boing, which is a popular website, Corey um, Doctorow. About half a decade ago, he was telling me about stuff that they can switch your camera on in your laptop mm. and watch you. And God knows, perhaps they do. You're looking at pornography. You're looking at something you shouldn't. They, they have a picture of your face doing it. They, if they want to, can do this. This is not new stuff. It's just the application. The more and more they do it, and, and let's face it, coming back to Iran, just to yeah. bend it around, do you remember Stuxnet? Who needs to send an aircraft carrier to Iran when the Israelis and, and American defense departments can stick a worm into you know, the, the computers that are being used to develop a nuclear weapon and set them back five years. Can I just say two things? Yeah, please, ready? quickly. One is that the Israelis are the market leaders in this, and in going back to our earlier story, in low-level tactical drones. They are way, way ahead, so we'll park that. But the interesting thing is the anecdote, the, the antidote to this that I've followed is with the Cosa Nostra, I mean, the, the real Cosa Nostra in Sicily, where there was a semi-literate but absolutely brilliant leader uh, in Corleone, inevitably, Prospero, Prospero Gallinari. And why they couldn't find him? Because they knew within two or three years of mobile phones being used in general that they were being listened to and they switched yeah. them off. And he communicated, and he was only down the road from Cor Corleone, and he was in a barn, beautifully converted, in Pizzetti, because he used to send the laundryman, the postman, with, the, with these little biglietti, these little, these little um, written messages or verbal messages, and they realized that's how you, how you get around technology, by having no technology, and a hell of a lot of organized crime still works like that. Gents, we shall leave it there for today. Michael Goldfarb and Robert Fox, thank you so much for joining me here on Midori House. Today's show produced by Carlotta Rabella, our studio manager, Kenya Scarlett. I'm Daniel Bates. Thanks for listening. <laughs>